den Richtlinien so vorgenommen worden sind, wie wir das für richtig halten. Das heißt... Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, oh, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O! Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Roxbrocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, and now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! This looks awesome! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome. You definitely have that right, my good man. Ha <laughs> ha! Thanks, Dr. Mary! My pleasure, Billy. And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye! Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine! Available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere. Or at Amazon.com or ArchaicMedia.info. That is A-R-C-H-A-I-C-M-E-D-I-A dot info. <laughs> Devil by Possession by Mark Slade The Palace of Humbert was clean. Jode turned to Father Gore and smiled. I'm done, Your Holiness. May I eat now? Father Gore held out his hand, and the boy kissed his ring. As you pass by, check in on her ladyship. As you wish, Father, Jode quipped and rose to his feet. It was in the bottom floor of the palace that they kept quarters. Above them were mostly servants, taking care of the near-empty castle. After King Leon died of the plague, it was decided upon by all concerned that his rooms be left for some time so that the disease could leave on its own accord. Father Gore was happy to stay at the bottom of the palace, for the abbey and the library were next to each other, as well as a makeshift kitchen. Father Gore turned to face his desk. He picked up the letter from the cardinal. It read that he was sending Father Sill to take over his post, and he was to relocate to Quam. Father Gore was not happy about that. He had kept his post at the palace for five years. He's been instrumental in keeping King Leon's death a secret, 
He felt the church owed him something, and sending him to a plague-stricken village was not what he counted as gold in his purse. Jode passed by Lady Seraphine's bedroom door. Her ladyship had not been feeling well for the past four months, ever since she had joined Father Gore and Jode in the palace. Jode hadn't understood anything that was going on since her arrival. Why was she not with Lord Florentine? Where was he? The civil war between the land had been over for a year. Barely any mention of Lord Florentine or his troops. Jode stopped at the door. Lady Seraphine, he whispered. He heard rustling. Lady Seraphine? Still no answer. But there was a heavy panting and a muffled cry. Jode touched the doorknob. It was ice cold. He withdrew his hand quickly. Jode took a few steps back. He turned to leave, thought better. Jode flew open the heavy wooden door. Lady Seraphine lay on her canopy bed, writhing about, her back arched up, her skirts around her waist. She was thrusting back and forth. Jode was no fool. He was seventeen, and he had one sexual encounter with an older servant woman, and he knew the position. Lady Seraphine was in the middle of lovemaking, but had no lover upon her. Jode backed away from the door, watched a moment more, then ran down the hallway, calling for Father Gore. The royal surgeon was called in by Father Gore to have a look at her Lady Seraphine. At the moment, her ladyship was resting, and Father Gore was not allowed to question her. It is apparent that I speak with her soon, Dr. Hera. Father Gore placed a hand on Hera's shoulder. The small, thin man pulled away gingerly, half-smiled. I'm afraid something terrible is happening to Lady Seraphine, Father. It's not spiritual, I assure you. Hera walked along the long corridor. Father Gore followed. Father Gore looked confused. But, Doctor, my assistant saw her in a state of repos- Hera clucked his tongue and wagged his finger. A boy's eyes in such a lonely, dark place as such, often one can see things that aren't real. You're not a believer, are you, Doctor? Yes, I believe enough. Enough as your soul will not be eternally damned, I see. Let's move on to our ladyship, eh? She has scratches and bite marks. I can see she has been with a man. She has also been beaten, rather savagely. Hera stopped to ponder this. Well, I'm not altogether sure she did not enjoy her time of this event. However, she is very much distraught. She does not seem to respond well to conversing with others. Anyone comes near, she flinches. What is troubling, she has more than likely experienced this more than once. It is the first time I have heard of this. I only spoke with her that morning. All was well, though she longed for Lord Florentine. Father Gore stopped Hera, showed him his room. Hmm, no one has heard from him. Another strange event. Hera opened the door. The musty air of the room tickled his nose. He sneezed. Father Gore blessed him. Lady Seraphine lay in her bed, looking at her own reflection in the mirror beside the dresser. She was feeling slightly better than before. She touched her long, flowing, strawberry-blonde hair and wished she could cut it all off. She touched her full lips and wished they were slack and droopy. She wished her green eyes were crossed and her backbone uneven. She wished her supple breasts were small like a twelve-year-old boy's. She wished she could join the sisterhood with all the other unlucky women in society. Lady Seraphine closed her eyes. She'd grown tired. She hadn't even dressed for bed, nor asked for a new pot. She reopened her eyes for a moment. There was movement in the mirror. 
It was quick, but there was something scattering back and forth through the mirror. She sat up. She looked behind her. Nothing there. Lady Seraphine sighed. She felt a chill run through her body. Her eyes drifted back to the mirror. Her gaze was transfixed. She saw it. It moved slower this time, its milky skin naked to the world, a scaly face with mismatched features. It was staring at her with small red eyes and sneering, showing all of its tiny sharpened teeth grinding together. Lady Seraphine tried to rise from the bed, but something was weighing her down. She panicked. A scream became a murmur in the back of her throat. There it was, the thing from the mirror, sitting on top of Lady Seraphine's abdomen, swishing its prickly tail back and forth. A purr and a growl intertwined in a high-pitched voice. It lowered its arm and took hold of her by her long, swan neck, its nails scraping at the clean white skin. Hera had been passing by. He heard the rustling in Seraphine's room, the grunting, the panting, the growling. The door to her room flew open. Hera was shocked. The creature had hold of Seraphine, its claws deep in her breasts. It turned quickly and looked at Hera. It bounced off Seraphine and scurried inside the mirror. Hera reached down and picked up the brass piss pot. In one sweeping motion, the brass pot shattered the mirror. Several pieces of shard flittered through the air, littering the floor. Hera heard a scream. He rushed out of Seraphine's room into the hallway to find Father Gore laying in pieces like broken glass. Hera bent down, picked up a piece with Father Gore's mouth. He felt the last of Father Gore's cold breath on his face. The Circus by Sidney J. Bounds because he had been drinking, Arnold Bragg considered it a stroke of good fortune that the accident happened a long way from any main road and the chance of a patrolling police car. He had no exact idea of his location, just that he was somewhere in the West Country. He was on his way back from Cornwall, where they'd been covering a story, an expose of a coven of witches for the Sunday Herald. He drove an MG sports car, and as always, with a few drinks inside of him, he had driven too fast. With time to spare, he'd left the A30 on a whim. It was a summer evening, slowly cooling after the heat of the day. The countryside was what he called pretty, with lanes twisting between the hedgerows. He took a corner at speed and rammed the trunk of a tree that jutted out into the road, just around the bend. Shaken but unhurt, he climbed from his car and swore at the leaking radiator. Then he got back in and drove on looking for a garage. He found one, a couple of miles further on, next to a pub with a scattering of cottages. There were not enough of them to justify calling it a village. A mechanic glanced at the hood and sniffed his breath. Ah, I can fix it. Might be a couple of hours though, maybe. Arnold Bragg nodded. I'll be next door when you got it finished. It was a kind of pub that only exists in out-of-the-way places, and rarely then. A house of local stone, with a front room converted into a bar. The door stood open, and he walked past a stack of beer crates. The walls were thick, and it was cool inside. On a polished counter, 
rested two casks, one of cider, one of beer. A gray-haired woman sat knitting behind the counter, and two oldish men sat at a wooden bench by the window. Bragg turned on the charm that rarely failed him. I'll try a pint of your local beer. The woman laid her knitting aside, picked up a glass mug, and held it under the tap. Sediment hung in the rich brown liquid. Bragg tasted it, and then drank deeply. Mm. I didn't know anyone still brewed beer like this. He glanced around the room. Perhaps you gentlemen will join me? Or likely you will, sir. And many thanks. Bragg's gaze moved over to a poster thumbtacked to the wall. It had obviously been hand-printed, and read, Circus, before your very eyes, werewolf into man. See the vampire rise from his coffin. Bring the children, invest in a sense of wonder. As Arnold Bragg stared and wondered if beer had finally rotted his brain, sluggish memories stirred. In his job, he always listened to rumors. Some he hunted down and obtained a story. There had been this crazy one, crazy but persistent, of a freak circus that never visited towns, but only stopped for one night in isolated villages. He'd come across it first on the Fens, then on the Yorkshire Moors, and then again in a Welsh valley. The knowledge that this circus was here, now, sobered him. He set down his glass on the counter, unfinished. When he sent it a lead, he could stop drinking. And this one was likely to prove the apex of his career dedicated to discrediting fakes and phonies of all kind. He studied the poster carefully. No name was given to the circus. There was no indication of place or time for performance. Still, it shouldn't be hard to find. He strolled outside, past the garage where the mechanic worked on his car, and sauntered down toward the cottages. A few families, young husbands and wives with their offspring, were taking a walk down the lane, and he followed them. Presently, he glimpsed in the distance the canvas top of a large tent showing above some trees. He kept to himself, observing the people on the way to the circus. There was no gaiety in them. With solemn faces, measured steps, they went people who took their pleasure seriously. Beyond a screen of trees was a green field, with the big top and a huddle of caravans and land rovers. People formed a small line at an open flap of the tent, where a little old man sold tickets. He sported a fringe of white hair, nut-brown skin, and the wizened appearance of a chimpanzee. Bragg dipped his hand into his pocket and brought out some loose change. I don't believe you will like our show, sir. The accent was foreign. It's purely for locals who understand. Nothing sophisticated for London gentlemen. You're wrong, Bragg said, urging the money on him. This is just right for me. He snatched a ticket and walked into the tent. Seats rose in tiers, wooden planks set on angle irons. It was the center of a sawdust ring behind the low planking. An aisle at the rear allowed performers to come and go. There was no provision for a high wire act. Bragg found an empty seat away from the local people high enough that he could command a clear view, but not far enough from the ringside that he would miss any detail. Not many seats were occupied. He lit a cigarette and watched the crowd. Grave faces, little talk, and the children showed none of the excitement normally associated with a visit to the circus. Occasionally, eyes turned his way and were hastily averted. A few more families arrived, all with young children. The old man who sold the tickets doubled as a ringmaster, he shuffled across the sawdust and made his announcement in hardly more than a whisper. Bragg had to strain to hear the words. 
Hi, Dr. Nis. Welcome you to the circus. Tonight, you will see true wonders. The natural world is full of prodigies for those who will open their eyes and their minds. We begin with the vampire. Somewhere, pipe music played. Notes rippled up and down a non-western scale, affecting an eerie chant. Two laborers came down the aisle, carrying a coffin. The coffin was far from new, and they placed it on the ground, as if afraid it might fall to pieces. The pipes shrilled. Bragg found that he was holding his breath and forced himself to relax. Tension came again as the lid of the coffin moved. It moved upward, jerkily, an inch at a time. A thin hand with long fingers appeared from inside. The lid was pushed higher, creaking in the silence of the tent, and the vampire rose and stepped out. Its face had the pallor of death. The canine teeth showed long and pointed. A ragged cloak swirled about its human form. One of the laborers returned with a young lamb and tossed it to the vampire. Hungrily, teeth sank into the lamb's throat, bit deep, and the lips sucked and sucked. Bragg stared, fascinated, disgusted. When, finally, the drained carcass was tossed aside, the vampire appeared swollen like a well-fed leech. The laborers carried out the coffin, and the vampire walked behind. Jesus, Bragg thought. This is for kids? Dr. Niss made a small bow. You who are present tonight are especially fortunate. Not every performance is possible to show the ship changer. Lycanthropy is not a condition which can be perfectly timed. And now, here is the werewolf. He placed a small whistle to his lips and blew it. No sound came, but a large gray wolf trotted into the sawdust ring, moving silently as the whistle called it. Slanting eyes glinted yellowish-green. The animal threw back its head and gave a prolonged and chilling howl. Hairs prickled on the back of Bragg's neck, and he almost came out of his seat. He blinked his eyes as the wolf's shape wavered. The creature appeared to elongate and rose high on its hind limbs. The fur changed. Bragg moistened suddenly dry lips as the wolf became more manlike. And more. Until it was a naked man who stood before them. An attendant draped a blanket about his shoulders, and together they walked off. Blood pounded through Bragg's head. It had to be fake, obviously, but it was a convincing fake. The ancient Egyptians believed in physical immortality, Dr. Nis whispered. They had a certain ceremony known as the opening of the mouth. This ceremony restored to the body, after death, its ability to see. Hear, eat, and speak. Here now is a mummy from the land of the pharaohs. A withered mummy, wrapped in discolored linen bandages, its naked face, dark-skinned, was carried into the middle of the ring. Four jars were set about it. These are canopic jars, containing the heart, lungs, and viscera of the deceased. A voice spoke a voice that seemed to come from the mummy. It spoke a language unfamiliar to Bragg. Oh, oh, 
Dr. Niss said smoothly. I will translate freely. The mummy speaks. True believers only are safe here. Those who doubt are advised to open their hearts. Bragg wanted to laugh, but sweat dried cold on his flesh, and laughter wouldn't come. The mummy was carried off. We have next, Dr. Nist said with pride, an experiment of my own. Can a corpse be reanimated? Can the component parts of a man be brought together and endued with life? I shall allow you to judge how successful I have been. A travesty of a man shuffled down the aisle and into the ring. It was hideous. The limbs were not identical, and they had not come from the same body. The head, waxen and discolored, lolled at an angle, as if unsecurely hinged at the neck. It lumbered unsteadily around the sawdust ring, and it smelled. The man did not speak. It stumbled over uneven feet, rocking from side to side as it tried to recover its balance and lost its head. A small gasp jerked from Bragg's lips. The detached head hit the sawdust and rolled to a stop. The headless cadaver blundered on aimlessly like a decapitated chicken until attendants hurried to guide it from the ring. Bragg felt sick. His fingers drummed nervously on his knees. Impossible to believe that this thing was just a freak. Yet he had to believe or admit the impossible. Dr. Niss looked unhappy. I must apologize. Obviously my experiment is not yet perfected for public viewing. And so we come to our final offering this evening. You all know, if only in a vague way, that before men inhabited this world, the reptiles ruled it for millions of years. They were the true lords of the earth. Science maintains that they died out before men appeared. But science has been wrong before. There was interbreeding. The creature that slithered into the ring was about five feet long. It had the general appearance of a man on all fours. But its skin was scaly and iridescent. The hands were clawed and the head narrowed and thrust forward. And a forked tongue hung from the mouth. An attendant brought a plastic bag and released a cloud of flies. The creature reared up, long tongue flickering like forked lightning, catching the flies and swallowing them. A sick show, Bragg decided. An outrage to perform this sort of thing before children. The catchphrases of popular journalism ran through his head. This show must be banned. Pipe music played again, a falling scale. Dr. Niss bowed and left the ring. Families rose and filed out, quietly, their offspring subdued. Bragg vaulted into the ring, crossed the sawdust, and left by the aisle exit. As he hurried toward the canvas, he saw Dr. Niss entering one of them. The door was closing when Bragg arrived and leaned on it. Dr. Niss turned to peer at him. Ah, Mr. Bragg, I was half expecting you. You are... After all, well known in your trade. Bragg pushed his way into the caravan and felt like a giant in a doll's house. 
Everything seems smaller, neat, and tidy. In its appointed place. Then you'll know the paper I work for, and the sort of thing I write. He couldn't be bothered to turn on the charm. Tell me. Tell the Herald's millions of readers, how do you justify this show? Horror for adults. Okay, we'll go along with that. But the kids? Dr. Niss made a small deprecating motion with his hands. Horror, Mr. Bragg. I deplore the term. My life is spent in keeping faith alive. Faith in the mystery of nature. Strange things happen. If a man who believes sees a ghost, is he frightened? Yet a man who disbelieves and comes face to face with one may well die of shock. So perhaps my show serves a useful purpose. As for children, what better time to develop a sense of wonder? That's your story. Now let's have the lowdown on how your gimmicks work. Gimmicks? Dr. Niss regarded him calmly. I assure you, I do not deal in trickery. Consider this. Who knows you are here? And aren't you just a little bit frightened? Bragg flinched. Who? Me? Of a bunch of freaks? But his voice was edged with doubt. Dr. Niss said, I do not want the kind of publicity you have in mind, Mr. Bragg. I don't think it would serve my purpose. He smiled suddenly, and his smile was not for his visitor. Arnold Bragg turned. Freaks crowded the doorway of the caravan. The vampire, the werewolf, and the lizard man. The resurrected man was conspicuously absent. I think it would be best if Mr. Bragg disappeared, Dr. Niss said quietly. But don't damage his head, please. He looked again at Bragg, and his eyes were bright and hard. You see, Mr. Bragg, I believe I have a use for it. <laughs>